Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, April the 7th, 2023. We're having a, uh, a marriage day today, or at least uh, a conversation about a couple of books of marriage, quite different. Uh, earlier today, I talked to uh, Max J. Friedman. He has a memoir of his parents called Painful Joy, Two Holocaust Survivors. And in the book, he describes the way in which the Holocaust drove his parents together. Um, they were so bound up with one another um, and their experience in surviving the Holocaust that their marriage was a form of claustrophobia. It was impossible to break in. And Max writes as a child of the trauma of growing up in that way. I guess in, a, in an odd kind of way, it was a good marriage. Uh, they were very close, perhaps all too close. Um, quite, an, qu quite an interesting uh, experience. Uh, but today, uh, now we are talking about a very different kind of marriage uh, and a very different kind of relationship of marriage with world historical events. My guest is Anjan Sundaram. He's one of the leading uh, journalists, uh, overseas journalists of his generation. Uh, but he has a new book out called Break Up a Marriage in Wartime, which is about the contradictions and perhaps incompatibility of being a foreign correspondent and maintaining a marriage. Anjan is joining us from Mexico City today, where, surprise, surprise, he's um, reporting a major story. Anjan, um, Tell me a little bit more about this book. It must have been, in an odd way, a more painful book to write than uh, your previous books, uh, like uh, uh, Stringer and um, Bad News, which are both more conventional journalistic pieces about uh, overseas adventures. Absolutely. This book was... Um... You know, journalists, we're trained to report on the world, you know, you know, point our cameras at other people, but very rarely do we actually uh, turn the cameras upon ourselves. And I think that's really important. And so there's these huge blind spots uh, about the lives of journalists, the toll and the costs of doing frontline war correspondence. And that's what I realized in, in, when I was trying to write about this, uh, uh, this war you know, in the Central African Republic, this situation of ethnic cleansing, um, I realized that my marriage had both been fundamental to helping me do that kind of reporting. And it also, and then the reporting damaged the marriage. And my story is not, you know, unique in that way. Uh, a lot of war correspondents and, you know, frontline human rights workers have experienced similar costs to their personal relationships of their work when they get obsessed with the story. And, uh, but rarely is it written about. <laughs> and so yeah, I it's interesting. Um, this, you, the book is in part about a civil war in Central African Republic, one that actually Roger Cohen of the New York Times has also written about. Cohen was on my show uh, in February of this year talking about his new book, An Affirming Flame, Meditations on Life and Politics. And he actually, it was interesting in the conversation, he broke down and started crying. Uh, he, he, he's an intensely emotional person, of course, not all overseas correspondents are the same but he talked to me about the the loneliness of being an overseas correspondent of all the 
moral responsibility on top of simply the bravery uh, of doing that kind of job. Are there generalizations um, we can make, do you think, uh, Anjan, about overseas reporters like yourself and Cohen? Yeah, that really hits home, the, the loneliness of, of doing this kind of work. And that's why family then becomes so important because family then becomes that little nugget in your life that understands why you're doing this work, uh, is behind you. Uh, and the work is really lonely because you're often traveling to faraway places. You build very close relationships with people who are experiencing very traumatic events often, um, you know, attacked, their families attacked, they're fighting for something important, risking everything. And then often at the end of that work of reporting, you have to leave. Uh, that's not your place in the world. Uh, it's their place, but it's not yours. And so those relationships tend to become very intense, but ephemeral. And so you're left with this sense of a void, uh, you know, as you, as you travel around the world. Uh, that, that, that point about the loneliness really hits home. It must be in a way rather like returning from war. It's always very hard for, and it tends to be men generally who return from war back to civilians, back to their wives and families. And yet those wives and families have no understanding. They, they, they can't have an understanding of, of what you've been through. Do you think that um, the kind of work you do in places like Central African Republic, which most of us know nothing about, most of us don't even know where it is, um, means that, you're rather like a foreign soldier returning home? Um, I, I th in, in my case, it, it was unique because my ex-wife uh, was also a war correspondent. And we had met on the front line of the war in Congo. I describe uh, our meeting in my first book, Stringer. And so she understood. Uh, and she had even you know, done the same work that I had. Uh, and she understood my reasons for wanting to go out to the Central African Republic. You know, when I heard these rumors of genocide, of maybe ethnic cleansing happening in that place, which, like you say, it, it doesn't even sound like a, a country. My, my editors asked me, which Central African Republic? <laughs> you know, when that's yeah, the I had the same <laughs> response, I have to admit. I mean, when you look at the map for people watching, it's a landlocked place in the middle of Africa. The most, I mean, Africa is still a, the, the most obscure continent, and it's probably one of the most obscure places within that relatively obscure continent. And, and the obscurity really appealed to me in a certain way because, uh, you know, in, in our age, information age, in the age of Twitter, we think we're well informed about everything. Everyone's tweeting. I was traveling through this war where, you know, villages had been attacked. People had been killed. There had been massacres that had happened that, you know, even five kilometers away, the next village didn't know about. And... Uh, in these places, the radio antenna had been destroyed by the government. So I was driving through them, through these places, and we were collecting, you know, me and my companions were collecting accounts in, of attacks that had been written by hand in neat handwriting on pieces of paper. And people would hand these to us and say, this is what has happened to us. Please take this page back to the next village or town and tell them what's happened to us and what we need. We need medicines, we need food, we need water, and nobody knows. And so that, that's the kind of level of isolation that, that still exists in our world in the 21st century. And that, uh, that it, it drives me, it motivates me to go and report on these places. Um, and, and what happened was that, you know, uh, we heard about the, the, the ethnic cleansing that was, you know, the Muslims being targeted. And right at that point, when I heard about, you know, what was going to happen, uh, my wife asked me to come home. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't because... Uh, 
I was torn between home and the story. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's almost, um, there's a fictional quality to it because of the vivid contrast in where you were. You were living with your wife in, uh, and your child in Shippigan, which I'd never heard of either, I have to admit, in New Brunswick, northern part of Canada, northwestern, uh, northeastern part of Canada. There can be no more vivid contrast between Shippigan and the Central African Republic. So why were you in Shippigan? Why were you living there? Well, my wife had just given birth, and that's the town she'd grown up in. That's the town she was from. Oh, so, so you we... went back to where she was from. Exactly. And she was comfortable there, you know, for the birth around her family. And my, my daughter had just been born. Uh, she was three months old. And uh, that's when I heard about this news in the Central African Republic. And, you know, as I describe in the book, becoming a father made me want to do work want to do work not only to provide you know for her but also do work that in some way that i that would make her proud that would tell her who i was i had to really think about the kind of work that i was doing and when this war when when this this war broke out in the central african republic it really spoke to me it really called me yeah although i i don't want to put myself in in the shoes of your wife but some wives would say well that's all very well but spend a couple of years here while your daughter's growing up and then you can go off and do whatever you want right but it was interesting in the in the you know initially she actually helped me she was very supportive of the journey she understood the reasons and the motivations for going and covering the war having been a war correspondent herself in central africa she was closely you know she followed the news in the in the region uh in africa and uh, uh and she understood the stakes uh you know how few reporters even today uh, traveled to places like the Central African Republic. And the war in the Central African Republic was, you know, as big as the war in Syria, which was on the front pages of newspapers and, and, and TV Right, you, you, you made a, a name for yourself covering the Rwanda conflict. Um, I think that's what uh, Stringer in, in part is about. How would you compare and contrast this war in... Um, in the Central African Republic to the to the the Rwandan conflict and of course the Rwandan humanitarian tragedy which has been for better or worse rather easy to moralize on the part of uh, the western media Paul Kagame being the bad guy uh, -huh. uh I think uh the Central African Republic war is really I mean I, I think it's quite easily the most obscure major war in the world uh you know there's no war that on this scale that is about so little that is covered so little. when I showed up in the Central African Republic like uh, there were no reporters from neighboring you know African countries countries like Nigeria and Kenya nobody showed up even though you know the thousands of people had been killed the war there was a coup d'etat power was shifting hands uh, this country can feel like a piece of oblivion like a piece of the high seas uh, very few people actually yeah, this sounds like a title of a, of a story by Kapuscinski. We had a war and nobody showed up. <laughs> he, was a, he was a reporter who inspired me. I, I, I think in, in, in a place like, you know, across the African continent, a lot of things have changed since Kapuscinski's time. Uh, but in the Central African Republic, somehow time has stood still. And uh, Yeah, it's interesting. Um, <laughs> I hadn't thought of this um, before I came across your book and, and realized you were coming on the show, but a few months ago, I, I did a show with a Stanford University historian, J.P. Daunton, Daunton, Daunton uh, on a new book he's 
written called In the Forest of No Joy, the Congo Ocean Railroad and the Tragedy of French Colonization, which is about the building of that railroad, which I assume in part is in the Central African Republic. Can most of the obscurity of this um, be, uh, Anjan, be made sense of in terms of the history of colonialization? I think so a lot. I, a lot of people have forgotten that before the French showed up in Central Africa, in the Central African Republic, uh, there were powerful Islamic kingdoms that ruled over this, this place. And the rest of the world has forgotten about them. And one of them was called Dar al-Kuti, the door to the forest. Um, but the Muslims in the Central African Republic have not forgotten. And they initiated this war in part to drive out the West. And I think this is a movement that is, uh, you can see across the world. You can see it in, even in Ukraine. Putin is trying to push out Western influence and NATO from, from his borders. And in a similar way, these Muslim you know, rebels in the Central African Republic said, you know, 100 years of Western dominance in our region, enough. We want to go back to the glory, the glory of our empires that we still remember, but the world has forgotten about. And so they initiated this war and they took power even though they're only 15% of the Central African Republic, they took power for a very brief period. And now that they've been pushed out of the capital, they lost power again. They've formed breakaway provinces that they've renamed Dar al Kuti, you know, after the old empires. And so they still carry and harbor that dream. Uh, but the world has forgotten. Well, about perhaps, and you know this better than I do, perhaps it's not so much that the world has forgotten, but the world isn't interested in that narrative. It doesn't conform to the sort of Holocaust-style extreme good versus evil of the Rwanda narrative. It's more complicated than that. We actually did a show, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, School of Oriental and African Studies historian John Parker. He has a new mm -hmm. book out, Great Kingdoms of Africa, which is designed to liberate Africa from a sense of you're just looking at it purely in colonial terms as being oppressed. So in a way, there's a... There's a war of narratives going on. Is that fair, Andrew? Uh, totally. I think there are many reasons for the obscurity. There's, uh, you know, uh, people don't want to think of these great African kingdoms. They want to think of Africa as sort of primitive and downtrodden. That's been the colonial lens. And also, I think, you know, in places like Congo, Central African Republic, they've provided the mineral resources to fuel technological advancements, whether it's, you know, cars, to, uh, you know, circuit boards, telephones, mobile phones, or... Uh, computers and and we and those the conditions in which those minerals are extracted are atrocious and i think that also contrib we don't want to look at the places at the harm that the world the modern world is doing in extracting these minerals from uh from these countries and so it's easier to turn away just as you know as human beings we turn away from our own flaws it's easier sometimes to just to look away from from the hard things in the world and about ourselves as well Unless, of course, you're the Disney Corporation and reinvent Africa to suit certain other kinds of <laughs> ideological sensibilities. What, what do you make of these ways of representing Africa, which are now quite fashionable uh, in Disney and other major American uh, entertainment companies? I understand the impulse. I completely understand the impulse for, you know, to reverse this colonial lens. To, to look at Africa at Africa as a modern and you know uh, a futuristic place, and there's a lot of Afrofuturism now that tries to counter these you know racist uh, lenses of the past. But I, I feel like unfortunately, uh, in this race, in this rush 
to label Africa as sort of modern and futuristic, uh, there's, a, there's a tendency to, there's a somewhat childish tendency to, to, to forget about some of the, the, the horrific things that are happening and uh, to brush them under the carpet, which doesn't help either. I mean, the only way these wars will stop is if more people uh, report on them, there's more attention, uh, more people talk about them, and there's uh, you know, political pressure to make them stop. And if we brush them under the carpet, that's not going to happen. And so I think it does a disservice to a lot of people. And I think these new narratives are often driven uh, by elites, uh, elite populations in, in Africa who, who have lived cushier lives and, you know, uh, in, in more privileged circumstances. So less Black and Panther and more, um, <laughs> and, and more uh, breakup, uh, or at least more <laughs> honest reporting. So maybe a balance of the two. Yeah, you know? is, so is there a... Should we even be looking for a moral take on this civil war in Central African Republic, or is it really just a war between Muslims and animistic or Christians, and that's just the nature of things, just like many other places in the world? Well, I think we can look at this war in the Central African Republic as an example, as a signal of countries around the world, small and large, that are looking to move away from the West. They're looking, they're, now the Central African Republic has allied with Russia now, and they're willing yeah, to... Yeah, that was what, uh, what uh, Cohen wrote uh, about Putin in, 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 uh, in the Times. Exactly. Uh, and I think they're willing to build these alliances with Russia and China, even at the cost of fueling greater war in places like Ukraine. And the desire to move away from the West is so deep and so strong that they're willing to take those risks. And I think places like the Central African Republic, Ukraine, you know, other places around the world point us to that direction and the West should really... Uh, hold, hold on, Andrew. What, what do you mean by the Ukraine? How does Ukraine fit into that narrative? Who's Well, I, I, I think Putin felt uh, uh, quite strongly that the West was, uh, you know, entering Ukraine in a powerful way and Ukraine, you know, is on the border of Russia and he felt threatened. And I think Putin, like the Muslims in the Central African Republic, wanted to push the West out of their zone of influence. The West was getting too close, was dominating too much. And I think many, many countries around the world, China feels similarly, uh, you know, India is buying Russia's oil. Uh, there are many countries around the world, and it doesn't fit the Western narrative, who don't like the West. Right. So, but where does that leave either the Ukrainians or the people fighting against the Muslim rebels or separatists in, uh, in Central African Republic. Can one be against Putin and still be ambivalent about the West that you have to throw in your lot with the West? I think, well, I think there's a lesson for the West here in that colonial crimes and even more recent crimes that have been perpetrated by the West maybe need to be apologized for, maybe need to be recognized. And the West has been reluctant to do that because they're worried that they'll have to cough up, you know, huge amounts of money and reparations. But uh, uh, I think moves such as those will build trust with populations that are, that, that are now seeing the West as sort of an unreliable, unequal partner. And they're willing to, you know, uh, cut deals with Russia and China instead. And I think that's a big lesson here. Are you happy with the decision you made? You said that you chose to go back and perhaps sacrifice your marriage because you felt you had some sort of obligation to humanity and particularly to your daughter. When you look back, are you pleased that, I mean, not pleased, that's the wrong word, but are you, I mean, you clearly, you've written about it and you're conflicted, but would you make the same decision again? 
Oh, I, I would make the same decision again. I, th I, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. And I don't, yeah, I, I think, you know, it's a, it's a very, very tough choice that I was, that I had to make. I had to choose between my work, which is a part of who I am, and I had to choose between that and my daughter, who's also yeah, a part of Yeah, you call this an impossible choice. Exactly. Yes, I think, I think often in this kind of work, you're forced to make these impossible choices. And it's, it's, a, quite a, it's a miracle when you find a partner and a family situation that understands what you're doing so deeply that they're willing to go along. And I think it's, a, it's an unfair question, you know, a choice that I, I asked of my ex-wife. And I think I was in turn asked an unfair question myself, made to, made, made to make an impossible choice myself. And uh, uh, in the end, I, 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 you know, when I think about my daughter, who's you know, perhaps the most important person in all of this, uh, I ask myself, who does she see her father as? And, and, and I, want to, I, I want to, you know, portray myself as, or I want to be the person that, be myself to her as much as I can. And, uh, and I think that's what I'm doing. One, and it's been difficult, but I, but I think it's worth it ultimately. One of the things that shocked me about this book and your narrative is that you had to, I mean, this is clearly a, a huge story. It should be a huge story. As you say, it's a, it's a massive war. It's interesting on lots of fronts, symbolically and politically, given the new Africa. And yet you had to finance the journey yourself because you couldn't find an editor or publication willing to pay for you to go. That's very, that's very troubling, for, I think, for the rest of us who want reporters like yourself to go and report on places that we're too busy or too terrified to go to. Uh, that's that's a. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's both troubling, but it also motivates me in a way. I see an opportunity. Uh, but yeah, you're completely right. Uh, you know, in, in a world where the media industry has thousands of dollars to spend on entertainment stories, yeah, millions, stories, Andrew, not yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I often have to finance my my reporting myself and all my books myself, and it's the same in Mexico. Uh, you're talking you know, to me from Mexico where you're doing some some environmental work, right? Exactly. And, you know, indigenous communities around the world are protecting 80 percent of our biodiversity, the biodiversity that we have left. And when I when I look for funding, it's, it's honestly hard to find funding to to cover these brave environmental defenders. So, you know, the, it's, it's, it's something maybe we don't want to spend the money, but I, I think uh, it, it's troubling, as you say. But I also see an opportunity. I see something that I can contribute. Uh, you know, other reporters don't have easy access to finances, uh, don't have easy access to, you know, orders from editors to go out and report on these stories. So I think, you know, maybe there's something that I can do that's different, that, that makes a contribution in the sea of information and books that we have in the world. Maybe this book can be a little different and, you know, have, have a purpose ha for being in the world. Uh, and, and so, you know, can justify me spending years of my time reporting writing uh, and doing everything that, you know, a book entails, uh, all, that, all that hard work. I, ne I need a reason to do it. And the fact that these important stories aren't being covered gives me that reason. Yeah, we've done some shows on Syria with Joby Warwick, who writes for the, the, the Washington Post. He reminded me that Syria now is pretty much forgotten by editors. Are, are we preoccupied with the stories, and particularly in Ukraine, which make us feel morally virtuous? Should we be spending... Should we be sending, we being the media, but newspapers spent, and television stations, sending less people to Ukraine and more 
certainly to the Central African Republic and Syria and other places around the world? Oh, 100 percent, 100 percent. You know, I remember in all of Africa, there were there are about three or four foreign correspondents covering the whole continent. And I remember when Oscar Pistorius, the Blade Runner, you know, yeah. Olympic printer was in front. Everybody was in one courtroom. All the journalists were an entire continent. And you can see the same effect in Ukraine. You, I, I believe the New York Times has 100 reporters on, on a rotation. It's like, you know, a war operation uh, for reporting, covering Ukraine. And there's nothing like that for, uh, you know, for uh, huge swaths of the world. And so it's, it's very telling which stories get covered and the ways in which they're covered. You know, journalists, parachute, foreign journalists parachuting in and out. Uh, Syria made the front pages when the war broke out, but now it's disappeared. And the Central African Republic briefly made the front page when, you know, uh, the, the Muslims were being slaughtered in the country. And then everybody just left. Uh, there are very few, you know, reporters, uh, news outlets that, that sustainably uh, fund and support reporters who stay in these places over the long term, cover these countries in the way that they used to be covered back in the old days when foreign correspondents... Right. Well, back did, in the old days, know. we had Kapuscinski, the legendary Polish journalist. Um, of course, there's also Joseph Conrad, more of a writer than a journalist. Kapuscinski was oh. controversial because some people suggested he clouded, to be polite, fiction and fact. Um, what's your sense of Kapuscinski's legacy? You've been compared to him. You're clearly an admirer of his work. And more broadly, as a journalist, how do you see these two arts of journalism and narrative or fiction? Um, yeah, you're completely right that there there is con uh, you know there is some controversy around Kapuscinski, and I believe you know he's even made up some interviews, which is you know he should have clearly labelled. But in, in a very important way, I think he's inspirational in the sense that. He, he wrote about how he was traveling through Africa in the 60s and 70s. There were all these coup d'etats, revolutions, human history unfolding before his eyes. But where were the writers? Where were the poets? Where were the philosophers? All these people who claimed to write about the human condition were not here to witness important events that affect human history, our, our history, our collective history. And so he, he brought important you know, styles, elements of storytelling uh, to reportage and made these faraway remote stories accessible to people around the world. And I think that is, that is exactly what we need to do and what I try to do in, in my books. And in that sense, he's been an inspiration. I, I write about myself in, in my books because I recognize that, you know, writing about Congo, Rwanda, the Central African Republic, these places are remote. And there's a reason why they don't feature in the news. They, they're, too, they're too isolated from, from, our, from the experience of people in other parts of the world. So people maybe can't relate to these countries, but maybe they could relate to me and they could relate to my story, my family, my education. You know, I turned down a job at Goldman Sachs to go and report in the Congo. I was teaching. I was a teacher of journalists in Rwanda. And these are, these are, these are positions and jobs that people can relate to. Uh, and that's why I, I, I kind of use myself in these stories as a, as a point of entry for readers uh, to, to then, through me, observe what I live through and understand, you know, travel through these countries and understand what's happening in these places and come a little bit closer to, to these very important events, as you say, uh, that aren't reported on enough. 
let's end, uh, Anjan, with some advice from you for aspiring journalists. There'll be some young people watching or listening to this and think, wow, Anjan can do it. Why can't I? And I don't want to report on the Ukraine or Donald Trump or other nonsense that's going on in America. I want to report on the real story, the real human story, on all its complexity. I want to go to Africa. What advice would you give? Um, if you can't find an editor to sponsor, can people just show up in the Central African Republic? You did, although you had a network and you had a name, but you started somewhere. You started, um, as you suggest, uh, in your first book, Stringer, as indeed a stringer. Yes. Uh, I, I, the advice I would give is, well, my job in Congo is still open, you know, as a stringer. <laughs> there's, there's, uh, Does the, it the, pay well, Anjan? Well, you, if, you, if you are enterprising, you can make enough to earn a living. And if you can live cheap, uh, I mean, I, I detail everything. I lived in, in, in somewhat some, some, something of a slum in Kinshasa, the Congolese capital. I, my costs were low. Um, and, and I was a stringer for the AP. And that position, there's still no one, you know, from abroad uh, covering the Congo. And so and there's still news in the Congo. So if you're looking for a place to start, that's a very good place. And the other piece of advice I would, I would give is, you know, be humble, be very careful because these are dangerous places. And if people, as you're traveling, if people tell you, don't go ahead because, you know, last night we heard a noise, we heard an army truck move, and we're not sure what's going on, turn back because no story is worth your life. And, and, the, second, and the second piece of advice I would give is uh, 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 find a local journalist with whom to pair. Well, because Congolese journalists... Yeah, you have journalists. That, that. That's part of the narrative in, the, in this latest book. Exactly. I mean, uh, they've followed these stories for, for years and sometimes decades. They know what's going on. Partner with them, learn from them, and then give them credit when you're publishing your stories or your book. Write about, you know, put their name up top, uh, give them the byline, and write in your books about how... Uh, how important they were, how much they contributed to the reporting, because often in the way news is, news is reported and constructed, uh, they often are left out and they're not mentioned, they're paid a little bit and then, you know, uh, not given the credit or the prizes. Uh, so that's the advice I would end with. <laughs>